All right, everybody, welcome to episode two of Training Without Conflict podcast. Before we get into the show, I want to thank everyone who listened and shared the first episode. In this episode, we are discussing some of the articles and videos, and I want to let you know if you are listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, to make sure to check out the YouTube version to get a full experience of this episode. Today we have Mark Plonsky as my guest. He is a retired professor emeritus of experimental biopsychology, University of Wisconsin. And also he had in the early 90s, the very famous website, a dog training website called Dr. Peace. Right now he also has his own canine consulting business. Without any further delay, Mark, welcome to the show. The way I got to know Mark, I think we met, man, it's been such a long time. It's so cool to talk to you. Like, like your seminars. That's what it was. And, and then eventually, uh, you, you did few write-ups for my training without conflict videos. And from there on, we hit it. I mean, I, I. I cannot imagine how many nights we I, I would call you because my mind's just exploding with science stuff and I'm like, Mark, please, can you explain this to me? Because but there have been times that even you I remember you're like, I, I need I need time on this. <laughs> and then you call me back and then we talk forever again. I, I would say my to go person when when any anything that I need help with with scientific stuff way back when the internet started maybe a little bit after there was the the one of the most popular websites at the time dog websites dr p dr peace uh, now now what you do you do the you have that canine one-on-one uh, uh the consulting well what i did was i converted that old site to just a library of articles that I've written personally. Mm -hmm. So this way it's nothing to keep up where if somebody changes where they keep the material, I don't got to track it down. I put the material on the server. It's still housed on the university server because I'm not um, doing any advertising or any trying to make any money on it. And then in addition to that, I have my own web server where I have a business, a canine consulting service that I help people with um, problems, competition, whatever they've got going on with their dogs. Sometimes I uh, work with lawyers doing the um, expert witness stuff. I, I want to get into all the articles because there's some awesome articles that you've written over the years for sure. It, it almost seems like sometimes we, you and I will have these deep conversations for a few hours late night and then, and then it gets you going and then you, you write this beautiful articles that I'm going to post like after the podcast, we're going to have all the links for this is very, very much interesting. One of the articles I wrote, because the, la the last couple I posted, I posted in close in time. And that was the time where you were, you were especially interested in the article that I wrote on uh, the purely positive approach. Um, but I also wrote an article at that time on classical conditioning and how that relates to dog training. And I think that's an area where, you know, dog trainers have spent an enormous amount of time at this point on operant conditioning, reinforcement contingencies, ad nauseum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not criticizing that. That's a great thing. I think uh, for many trainers, an understanding of operant conditioning has helped enormously. But let, I think that as a researcher, one of the things that I particularly studied in studying animal learning, how people and animals learn. You know, I ran rats through mazes for like 25 years. That's a lot of rats going through their mazes. But one of the things I particularly studied was the mechanisms and theories to help us understand classical conditioning. That guy Pavlov with the drooling dogs and all that stuff. One of our latest conversations, I believe, we were talking about the, the signposting and that kind of stuff. But you're very correct with the um, 
for, for some reason, it's still like there was this huge boom in the early 90s about the operant conditioning and the shaping and and somehow it's oh, still... Bang for the buck. Mm -hmm. That's why I see it as being um, so contagious, so successful in getting spread through the dog training community. Where classical conditioning is kind of more subtle, it's more of an undertone. Uh, but nonetheless, I see it as the two go hand in hand. Um, in fact, some folks would argue, although this is probably getting off field, that classical and opera conditioning, they're really one thing. They're not even different. It's just two different ways of looking at the same thing. Yeah, because eventually they start to overlap, but I would be interested to hear a little bit, and I'm sure the the audience will be interested to, to, to hear a little bit about that if you want to go a little bit on that. Well, the way, the way I wrote this article, and it's posted on the web, I tried to orient it towards your average person could read it rather than a college student or professor. And uh, I talked about how with classical conditioning, three things are learned. Um, you know, in operant conditioning, the animal learns, what do I need to do to get something good or avoid something bad? Or on the other hand, if you want to get more complex, what do I need not to do to get something good or avoid something bad? You know. Which is the less talked part of it. But with classical conditioning, classical conditioning is concerned primarily, first and foremost, with what predicts what. Yeah, it's all anticipation of I know what comes next. Yes. And, and, and um, you know now I have my school for dog trainers and I do cover, I mean, we talk about opera and classical and I teach both very extensively. Ultimately, I really try to explain much more the classical part because when we train dogs, we're, we're giving the dogs commands. And even if you start with shaping, even if you, which, whichever way you're gonna start, eventually you're telling the dog what to do. You're cueing the dog what to do, which becomes classical event no matter what. And if you don't understand how classical conditioning works and what are the components and what are the big mistakes that you, you just really completely ruin it because it's about prediction, right? So as long as the dog can predict somewhere else what comes next instead of what you want him to predict it from, you just blew your training session and, and much more than that, right? I think the important thing with classical conditioning, the, the first important thing is what predicts what, but the second thing, which um, operant conditioning ignores emotions, operant conditioning doesn't even want you to talk about emotions, but classical conditioning is first and foremost, that's because an event is important to learn about if it's emotional. And so we gotta be careful with the emotions because if we do something and it makes that animal think that something really bad is gonna happen, the animal is not gonna like this. That's not gonna be a yeah. pleasant emotion. I mean, emotions dictate level of motivation and what kind of motivation depending on what kind of emotion is involved. Yes, if the particular, you know, like Pavlov talked about a uh, tone predicting food. So when a tone tells the dog that food's gonna happen, that yes, something is gonna happen, and it's a pleasant thing, one could argue that the dog was feeling joy. It was happy to, that it was being told, you're gonna get food. Now, if I'm telling you that something bad's gonna happen, you're not feeling so good, you're feeling distress. If I'm telling you that something good that you were expecting to happen is not going to happen, you're probably feeling disappointment. And I want to make clear that I'm arguing that people and the dog both have these emotions. We both show classical conditioning. Last but not least, to round out the quadrant, if I'm telling you that something bad is not going to happen, you're like, whew, you're feeling relief. So I think it's important that dog trainers kind of get the hang of that some of the cues, you know, that if what they do, and then they, let's say, shock an animal, that if that cue predicts shock, the animal's not feeling good about that. And I'm not saying the animal should always feel good, but what I am saying is that the trainer should have a, a bit of a handle on 
what they're doing and what kind of emotions it's going to create in that dog. Yeah, I, I'm so so much with you on this because uh, I I also see it so often. In in a big part, I think it's to blame the the whole operant like the shaping up with by approximation kind of style of training because it's just focuses so much strictly on creating a behavior that the trainers forget about that there is actual living being with emotions in front of them and they're just chasing that behavior after behavior after behavior not understanding that if you tap in the right emotions that dog's gonna want to do it so much better and so much more with, with the, the joy as, as you're saying it in there I, I never got to talk about this one thing that I'm kind of leading up to. The, remember I said the animal learns three things in classical conditioning. One of them is what predicts what. And then I showed you how, or we just discussed how emotions are learned because emotions are involved when we're talking about biologically relevant stimuli. But the third thing is, is really interesting. And that's that the animal comes to treat the predicting stimulus as if it was the biologically relevant stimulus. So with Pavlov, he rang a tone and he followed it with food. Eventually the animal salivated to the food. If I were you as myself as a dog trainer, what I was thinking when I was reading about and studying this material was, you know, so what has this got to do with dog training? How could I as a dog trainer use the fact that the animal begins to treat the predicting stimulus as if it was the biologically relevant stimulus. And what comes to mind is a um, particular psychologist, uh, let's see if I get her name here, uh, Dr. Pamela Reed. Uh, she's up in Canada, I believe. Yeah. Uh, she does agility. And I was attending one of her conferences, one of her um, seminars many years ago. And somebody in the audience asked how uh, they, they wanted to get the dog to do retrieves but they didn't want to use force at all. And the dog had no inclination to do the retrieve. And so Dr. Reed replied that basically you could use this fact that in classical conditioning, the animal begins to treat the stimulus as if it was the biologically relevant stimulus. So let's make a long story short here. How are we gonna get this animal to retrieve using classical conditioning? The person wanted the dog to retrieve a dumbbell for competition. And so what Allison Reed said was that if the dumbbell predicts food, then the animal would begin to treat the dumbbell as if it was food. It would try to eat it. If it tries to eat the dumbbell, that's the beginning of a retrieve. And then we could begin to use operant conditioning to reward those behaviors. So what she did then was to tell the person to put the dog in a crate and to cut a little hole in the crate so that a dumbbell could be lowered into the crate using a pulley system. What happens is you lower the dumbbell into the crate and then give the dog a food pellet. You do this a bunch of times. Eventually, the dog goes and bites the dumbbell, at which point you say, good dog and reward that behavior. So this is an example of how you could use of classical conditioning to help uh, teach a, a, a dumbbell retrieve. Yeah, that would have been cool to have a video of that, no? Well, that, and I, I would love to have had a video of that, and I don't, but I do have a video that will help illustrate this concept, and that was done by a, another Reed, but not, not, uh, not Pamela Reed. Mm -hmm. This was done by a professor like myself, Dr. Alliston Reed, and he was teaching his, had his students, like I've often done, train rats to press a bar. But what he did was train the rats to play basketball. So notice the rat drops it into the basket and gets a pellet. But notice how much difficulty the rat has in letting go of the basketball. Yep. If the rat is treating that basketball as if it's food, it can't let it go, it can't stop wanting to chew it because that basketball comes to predict that food and so it's treated as if it was the food 
And so classical conditioning explains why these rats are having a really difficult time letting yep. go of those basketballs. I love it. I love it. Classical conditioning is actually delaying the delivery of the reward because the rat can't let it go. If the rat yep. could let that go quicker, it would be able to get the food more quick. So this is a, also an example of where classical conditioning is actually getting in the way of the operant condition. That's your, actually the, um, what was their names? Kelly and, and Miriam Bertland, right? The, the instinctual drift. They yes. did it. They did that with the raccoon. Breland and Breland. Right. And that, that's, uh, that's one of the, the main components of the time discoveries where operant conditioning and specifically Skinnerian form of reinforcement started to kind of get shaken because yeah. up to that point everybody thought that oh we just reinforce and there is no way we, we're going to make it happen and without considering that genetic predisposition what just happened there that was yeah. a wake-up call and and actually in in you know i mean then then you have the few few more kind of really big cool studies that happen after and before that pointed out that reinforcement it's not one for everything and it just as long as we reinforce and we suppress things will happen or not happen that was the the original theory if if i'm not wrong and i remember i i, uh, I actually teach this in my class uh, about uh, john garcia you know with um he's uh, the version learning exactly number of studies here yes i mean his his is very interesting in terms of he tried to publish that was in the 60s he tried to publish this and they were not letting him publish it for years because it, it just will crumble the whole system of reinforcement yes mind-blowing yes and what what really happens even today people still believe that um, um you know, you can be all you can be as long as you do the right things and you get reinforced and you get like completely disregarding your genetic makeup. That your behavioral view ignores genetics. Especially like for, for dog trainers, so important to, to recognize and appreciate genetics. Now, I should make clear that I've never actually done that with the dog, but I, I haven't really needed to. That as a trainer, I train the dog when it's a puppy to retrieve and... I mean, the dog steals my shoe, and instead of getting mad at it, I praise it up. So I don't really have these issues. The re teaching retrieve is easy from my point of view. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So I haven't actually tested that, but I, um, based on all that I've studied and what I've just shown you, I'm 99% sure that if I did that with a dog, I can make it happen. Yeah, I can see it happen. I can see it happen. For, for anybody that spends enough time over the research that's been done that claims that positive reinforcement is the solution for everything and it's just better than anything, which is the old Skinnerian concept. I think it's created a lot of problems. I mean, a good example is these days, the dog pulls. People put a harness on the dog, a harness to stop pulling. I don't know what planet they're living on, but I put a harness on the dog when I want it to pull. So putting a harness on the dog to stop pulling doesn't work. I mean, it keeps me in business. It enables my canine consulting service to flourish, but I don't think it's helping people. And my impression is they do that because it's viewed as positive and gentle and- Force-free. I'd be all for it if it worked. The problem is it don't work. The thing is like, I tell you what, like from, from a competitive, and you know, I'm like super competitive in dog sports. Like I, if I know that something works better than anything else, I, I would travel, if I need to go to Mars, I, I find a way to go to Mars to learn that skill. And that's not just me. That's, that's probably 80% of the, all the diehard dog trainers that go and compete. We are always in a search, always in a quest to perfection and to find a better way. Everybody would love to have a dog that you don't need to use any aversives and be the best. 
and they like when you go into all the studies that swear by positive reinforcement you would see it's a very interesting phenomenon because like in let's say 10 years ago a study a paper comes out and they claim something but they clearly say well it works or maybe doesn't but more research is needed and next thing you know the next study that comes up cites that as a fact as a reality and fast forward 10 studies ahead now they are all have cited each other for the bullshit that the first one came up with and for the average person that reads a study and sees all those okay well oh it's gotta be true because it's confirmed 10 times in in various studies in the past but if you take the time and you go back and you see they are all there is no base and they cannot be replicated just as we were talking with john it is frustrating because we as dog trainers we want to move forward we want to find the best ways to train the most effective and the most humane ways but when such false information is thrown at us it confuses things fortunately there is always you know you can you can make a survey with 10 dogs you can make a little you know paper and and do some research that you got funded by you know it's guaranteed that it's gonna work just because you're using the right words and and the the idea fits the politically correct trend right now so yes you're gonna get published but everybody i bet you they also know that it doesn't work that way well i would say it's not just for dog trainers i see this emphasis on purely positive to be part of the problem where my students towards the later part of my career in my opinion were typically not as good as the students in my earlier part of my career because student people these days parents don't want to say no to their kids just like trainers don't want to tell their dog no i think it's a problem not just for dogs but for society sometimes people and dogs need to be punished i mean i'm not saying it should be brutal it should certainly be humane and appropriate principles that science has shown for example it needs to be prompt it needs to be consistent i mean there, there are we've studied this enough to know what works and what doesn't this is exactly my point like you this is what they have created you feel almost guilty when you say punished you feel that you have to actually back up and and explain that it's not what you imagine because it's ingrained by now in everybody that this must be something horrific and punishment is it's so valuable and it can happen and it happens in every day it's just it's like the wind and the rain i mean you know you turn the hot knob both you and i particularly like the use of negative punishment which doesn't involve aversive events we're taking something good and the animal learns from that but that needs a lot of explanation most people don't understand that right away a lot of times the argument of the force free is that we know all the how they would bring all the side effects the bad side effects of punishment but just as you're talking with your students i'm sure you know they grew up like this at home at school at the university they were always led to believe that you can be all you can be and you're the champion and you're the champion and 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 next thing you know they enter real life and now they have a job and and they're not the champion and that must hit them very hard yes indeed i mean it used to be early on in my teaching career the first 10 20 years when i gave a student a poor grade they went home and studied harder and realized that they messed up in the later part of my career when i gave a student a poor grade they blamed me that i didn't do my job or whatever and that's the point with you know how one of the favorite things to point out about side effects of punishment is that it creates the counterattack it creates aggression 
but so does positive reinforcement. Once you learn to be, oh, you're the champion, you're the best, and you're whatever, and all of a sudden you come to realizations that you are just an ordinary person and you have to accept it and you have to function through life and get a real job and actually prove that you are who you are. And you have two choices. You're going to get angry or you're going to start getting depressed. And neither one is good because all that positive upbringing didn't help you function in reality. But I would argue that aversive events are more prone to, like, when I, when I uh, bump my knee or stub my toe, I get angry. Yeah, I might get angry if I don't get something that it was I was promised that was good, but the aversive events have a tendency to create a little more nasty aggression a little more quickly. Yeah, the, the, this would be non-contingent versus contingent, right? Mm-hmm. It always has a very, very big role. And this is actually, in fact, part of what really pisses me off about the studies that come up because they will always bring some really beautiful, easy, cool example of how positive reinforcement will do magic and then bring the ugliest non-contingent punishment event that is just horrific thing that like, why would you do it? Who, who does it anyway? And if somebody does it, they should not. I mean, clearly should not, but how can you use that as your example of comparison that's just such a bad manipulation like in the article i wrote uh, talking about purely positive i talked about how even today in 2020 punishment is still used with humans in severe situations like children that are self-injuring and babies that, uh, let's see, in that article, I talked about a baby that uh, if they didn't use punishment, the baby would have died. It was vomiting to the point where it was emaciated. It wasn't going to survive. And they arranged contingent punishment for the stomach contractions. They hooked it up to a, something to measure the muscle contractions. And as soon as the muscle contract, they gave a shock. And that was the thing that turned it around. The kid began eating and not... the kid went on to survive. But this is a case where humans in a medical setting use aversive stimuli, electric shock or other such punishment. But you don't hear about that a lot. No, no, you don't like like, for sure, I can argue with anybody that I can list more positive side effects of proper punishment than the negative. Like if you if we put the cost and benefits of, of correct use i don't see how somebody can argue well but you 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 said a key word the proper punishment proper use like for example both you and i when we use punishment we always make an alternative behavior available that can be reinforced that's a given but many people don't and i would call that inappropriate use of punishment that's going to lead to more unpleasant side effects and less positive results than when an alternative appropriate behavior is made available that can be rewarded. No, I mean, there, there is so, so many rules or, or laws of how to apply punishment. But this is the problem because I think at this point where we are in the dog training world, you know, we know, we know in Europe, I would say at this point, the majority of the countries the the electric colors are banned and and certain a, a lot of things are banned in the quest to to stop using aversives altogether but what happens in reality i i think it's far more dangerous because you don't need to be scientific you know uh, a person that just digs into science you you're born to understand that you know you approach something that attracts you and you avoid something that it's aversive this is biological probably the most fundamental rule in our universe and subconsciously we understand that we don't need to really study it it's like no you you touch the hot stove and you back off and you're like okay that was dumb but what happens when we have these studies and we decide propaganda that bans everything. I'm so against the banning. But once you start banning things, 
that work. People continue to use them, but they hide. And when they hide, they don't get the right education. And they rush things, and they do dumb things. And actually, I, I witness it because I go places and I train dogs and I see people. When, when you are doing things behind doors and there is nobody to teach you and nobody to, to actually show you how to do things, right? You're literally just doing stupid shit because you have to hide. I mean, with everything, I'm sure you, I don't know how you feel, but I, I'm like, don't, you don't ban things, educate. Show, show, show if, if you claim that something is better, it's very easy to show that it is. And if it is, guess what? We all gonna line up. Like, like we're going to pay you money. Forget about your scientific paper. You're going to be rich because we all going to come at your door. Please give us a workshop and please teach us. No question, right? I think that's one of the biggest problems of the value judgment and ethics getting in the way of, of the appropriate use of punishment is that people are afraid to talk about it or they don't want to talk about it because they think they shouldn't use it because it's bad. But when what bugs me, though, is when they say that science shows it doesn't work or that that it, it works not as good or no, science doesn't show. That. It never says that. It's like the ridiculous cherry picking of three sentences and you make one that you want it to be. I am hoping that eventually people will be like, OK, let, let's let's back up and let's start over and let's rethink this and let's do it right. I don't think that'll happen. What you're describing, no, I don't think it'll happen. But I am somewhat optimistic that, I mean, people are going to continue to train dogs in ways it, it may not, like the use of e-collars or whatever, they're, they're going to continue to get used. I mean, the government, the, the, um, the military, they need their dogs. And so the dogs are still going to get trained. Um, whether your average Joe will have access to those kinds of tools or even the knowledge to use them, that may take quite a bit longer. Quite a few countries in Europe, police and military, they also are not allowed to, to use aversives. Really? Even the military? Yeah. 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 By, by law. I mean, they have to. We, everybody knows that you have to. You know, in some ways, you're becoming a little bit of a criminal because you're doing something against the law in order to do your job. I don't know. I think that the military kinds of does, at least here in the United States, I, I don't think they're telling us the things they really do. There's some interesting things in Europe, I tell you. I mean, there is a whole market, for example, right now that you can, you buy all sorts of, colors and things that you basically can hide the training equipment so nobody knows. That's even here in the United States. Uh, Prong collars, all kinds of covers and styles that are less right. visible. And, and when you look at the, the very first studies that they started, you know, the, the one was in that Dutch study, I think it was 2003. And even in that study, they just went so overboard. The dogs are afraid to walk in the park afraid of their shadows and, and all sorts of just just like a cra crazy ideas but the interesting part is that they suggest to the so the study I don't know if you are familiar with this uh, uh, but the, but the study was uh, with some police group of police dogs and some uh, sport dog bike protection dogs and one of the recommendations that came out from that study was that they should breed dogs <laughs> with less drive, dogs that are uh, easier to manage. Because obviously you don't have a solution, so therefore let's change the makeup of the dog. And the other one in that same study, which is the, the very first study that... that um, started that whole movement of banning training equipment. Even there, they admitted that, especially like for predatory uh, behavior problems, you know, like ships and chasing wild stock and car chasing, 
use of aversive to suppress is essential. Even, even they said it in their study. But that part is never said in the studies that came after. And very interesting how, again, it's the cherry picking. After that, there was the second big study that kind of basically really topped off everything. And it was like, okay, now we ban everything. And I think that was um, Schalke, it was Germany, Hanover, and I think it's 206 or something, I don't know. So in this particular one, they carefully right away tell you that those are beagles, beagle dogs that are bred for study. They are like laboratory dogs. So they're not like, you know, this one lived in that home and this one lived in that home. They're all genetically similar and they are brought up in the same environment. So, you know, that, that makes sense, right? So what they did, they taught everybody how to chase that prey. And then it's like, okay, now we're gonna use electric shock to stop them. And there is group A, group B, and group C. And I don't know which of the groups, but let's say group A, what they did, they actually taught a recall and punished the dog if the dog didn't come. Group B, there was no recall, they were just punished the dog for to stop chasing. And group C, they basically shocked the dogs randomly. Like, like pretty much flipping a coin, pop, flipping a coin, pop. Like completely non-contingent, right? The thinking behind this was that some people just don't know better and they will just do crazy shit, which it's very true. I know people that will do crazy stuff that they're just not intelligent enough and, or they don't care for the animal. I know there are people like that. But so far the, the whole study looked pretty cool until that point that they used that group dog C where basically they were non-contingently shocked as the reason why we should not use collars to wear the, the group A and group B, they actually proved to function and proved that even though they had stress in, during the learning, they recovered and they were completely sound and perfectly fine to where group C, poor things, they were afraid to walk into the room and rightfully so. If you don't take the time and actually study and see how it goes, and if you're the, just the emotional, I love dog people, and you say, well, no, see, this is what happens. They don't want to even go into that room anymore. They are a nerve wreck, and they truly are. I'm surprised, like when was that study done in the 2006, you said, roughly? Yeah. Yeah. Surprised they could even do that study now because these mm -hmm. days doing studies involving aversive events takes approval of committees and such. Used to be easy to get approval. Nowadays, very difficult to get approval. So even to study that kind of thing has become harder to do. Yeah, in Europe, for some reason, I think it's just because of the, the good cause, so to speak. They continue to do so. I mean, right now, in the UK, it's a big war. Same goes in Holland also right now. But in the UK, it's, a, it's been for several years right now a big battle. You know, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I talk like this and I wish someday I can actually talk to these people because I would love to have a conversation with them because I listen to, I listen. Researchers. Yes, yes. Like, like for example, there's a, like in the UK, there is um, Dr. Mills, there, is, there, is a, there's, there are a few people. Uh -huh. I've, I've had dinner one time with Dan Mills at a conference and stuff. Nice guy. Um, he's a researcher, though. Dan is not a dog trainer, Dr. Mills. Yeah, but as, as we were talking earlier, I think everybody wants to have a piece of the pie related to dogs. Quick question. Coming back to that study, group A, B, and C, I'm predicting group A did the best, huh? Yeah, I mean, they, they actually both did 
good, but Group A did the best, yes. What was interesting about that study, what really was interesting is because, of course, you're measuring stress, you're doing all the cortisol levels and all this stuff, which, which I kind of want to talk to you about the cortisol level stuff because I really, personally, from everything that I know, I don't believe that that's a good way to say that you're stressed to the point that this is something that you should not do because I think cortisol level can... Um, but 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 let let we 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 will talk about this in a second. But uh, group A did the best. The other one, group B, also was fine. And and uh, the cool thing is they, just like anything, you you stress out when you're learning something, especially when you want to learn. I always give these examples of of if you if you're a student and you sincerely want to do the best you can tomorrow at your test. You're going to be sick that night. You're going to be studying. You're not going to want to eat. You're going to be stressed as, as you can imagine. And there is really nothing that's coming from outside. It's your own motivation to be the best you can that puts the stress on you. When we always measure stress, and especially when we measure stress during the processes, not after, which is the 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 more important part you know because if we're thinking any electrician that goes to work let's take the the ones that climb these crazy heights with this insane uh, uh level of of electricity they don't go today is the day that i'm gonna die on that pole to work they go to work they know they're making good money and they know that if they stay consciously aware, there is nothing to worry about. As long as you understand, I mean, I mean, it comes back to contingent versus non-contingent. It's a, it's a big deal. Sure, if I, if I walk in, in my training room and I touch something and I get zapped, I touch it again, but I didn't. Then I touch something else and I get zapped. I will walk out. I'll be like, what, I don't know what's going on. You might not walk out if you were receiving uh, pockets of $100,000 here, $100,000 there. The zaps might not be so bad. That's true, too. When we train sometimes and even even during the, the class when I have the courses and stuff, we we would have a few drinks. We will be talking dogs and we will actually do something like this to where we will put some electric color and there is certain amount of dollars on the other end of the room and and some people make it some people don't and you know but but you want to play and you want to play or you don't want to play and how motivated are you for that goodie exactly exactly it's a it, it really brings a very good it brings a super good point uh, i mean we do it as a game but but there is a lot to take away from from that silly drunken game uh, um, there is a, you know, like a Victoria Stilwell, she has, you know, she has her academy, she has this thing and I, I she's still around. Oh, she, she's doing quite well. She's doing quite well. Again, it's a, given the climate of society. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's exactly it. And, and unfortunately it, it, it you know, it's so easy when, when things are presented in a certain way to you. Like, do you want to be the bad person or do you want to be the good person? Do you love dogs or do you want to punish them? Uh, um, you know, it, that's how things get presented. And, and what do people do, of course? I mean, who, who is this, you know? And as I was talking to you earlier, you know, the, of course there is not cases out there. But those people, it doesn't matter what you're going to ban and what you're going to take away. They're just bad people. They don't need anything to be bad people. There's always the heavy hand. That's kind of hard to ban that. Right. So what, what Victoria was doing in one of her, because she has a school for trainers. So she brings this electric collar. And of course, they call it shock collar. And it's like, oh, I'm going to use it on level one on me. 
on my arm. Okay, I feel it. It's a little tinkle. It's okay. Now I'm gonna use it on level two. Oh, that hurts a little bit too much. Now I'm gonna use it on level three. And I'm like, okay, Victoria, why? I mean, obviously, if level two hurt you enough, like, what is the point? Like, why would you go to level three? To prove that it hurts? Of course it hurts. It's meant to hurt. But that the interesting part about electric colors is that it really, and I'm not saying that things cannot go wrong because there is plenty of things that go wrong. But again, when done correctly, it is always a very cool way to use it because when you use electric color, what happens is the brain gets triggered and it hits that panic button that says, this is an emergency, we may die. But we know very well that this is not an emergency and you're not gonna die because it's a local, it just activates that part of your brain. That's the beauty of it. But otherwise it's completely harmless and you use that in your advantage. It's the reason why in, in all the laboratory studies, they don't use two by fours or air puffs or things like that because Animals get injured every day. I mean, you know that. You, you've done that all the time. To where the using electricity tells the brain the right, hey, watch out, this is something you don't mess with. It's a controlled, measured, aversive stimulus as compared and to a two by four, which is not so controlled or measured. Yes, One could argue, as Steve Lindsay does in his books, that the e-collar is a... Uh, unemotional way to administer it that by removing yourself from, I mean, that he's basically what I'm getting at is he's arguing the electronic collar being remote has some advantages as a way of punishing an animal as compared to uh, doing it physically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like this is like uh, the reason I brought Victoria in the conversation is that she says, oh, this hurts really bad. Now let's go higher. I'm like, why? If, if this is enough for you not to do something, we are good. Clearly it wasn't enough for her not to right? do things. Is I would argue, right. if, when I use electric shock and I use a level that works real good and no, the animal doesn't want any more. The person doesn't want any more. I'll tell you a really funny story. Really, really cool one. I was giving a seminar in, I think it was Romania. It wasn't Bulgaria, it was, it was one of the East European countries. And I was trying to explain how negative reinforcement would work. And of course it was easier to explain it with an electric collar. I asked for a volunteer and a woman, like she just rushed to be the volunteer. Like, like I'm talking, just jumping through the desk to come to the to the front. Interesting. I'm like, okay. So I put the collar on her and I put her hand on the wall. And I tell her, move your hand, and then I tap her on a very low level. Like really low level. I say, move your hand, and I then tap her. And as I tap her, she's holding her hand, but she is now overreacting. She's like, ah. I'm like, okay, that's a little weird. Kind of catch me, surprised me, you know? Because it doesn't move her hand, but it's ah, and like, I'm like, okay, let's do this again. Move your hand, little Nick. Ah! I think she'd probably do that even if you didn't do anything. So she had the point to prove that electric is very bad and punishment and any, not punishment, but just the use of aversive is very bad. She clearly came from that camp to the workshop to prove that point. Yes. So I stopped and I have a conversation. I'm like, what, what are you trying to prove? Do you understand what I'm trying to do? She's like, no. It doesn't matter what you're trying to do. You're using electric. And yes. She She's like, no, I don't understand. And I'm very upset. She's trying to, to do all the things that science says that happens, and she wants to prove me wrong. So guess what I do? 
I don't tickle anymore. I actually go on a level that I know that she's going to respond instead of acting out that she actually will feel it. So I say, move your hand. And she's like, ah, and I go, bam, and she goes, pull, and moves her hand. I bet she did. I'm like, let's do this again. Now she's looking at me, and she, like, you can see how all of a sudden it's not going her way. Yes. But now she's in front of everybody. Right. I'm like, put your hand. So she puts her hand. I put the, call, I put the remote control on the table. She doesn't know. Everybody sees it. I'm like, move your hand. Boom. I'm like, thank you. Have a seat. She jumped. Of course she did. It's, it's nature. And I, I never want to make it that. Now on, on the other side, you know, like we can talk about this because that's interesting always to me because the, the force-free community always bring this comparison of, okay, this is the reward-based trainer and this is the punishment. How did they call it now? Not punishment-based, but... Correction-based? Punishment... I think it's punishment-based or something Something really dumb. Like, like you cannot possibly have punishment as foundation of your training. You just cannot. Well, you or I might not, but hey, people are creative. I, I mean, how? I, I always would wonder, how, how can you actually do everything only by punishment? It would be the same way that the purely positive folks are doing are completely ignoring punishment so the theoretical purely i'm not sure I, I, I have trouble calling it purely negative i think you understand why but it's not just even negative it's it's not that it, they're not even saying that you're yeah you're not saying that you're using aversive or you're using negative reinforcement and positive punishment they're saying it's punishment based training which means you're only punishing actions you're you're not asking for anything to happen you're only stopping correct theoretically you could be punishing inaction lack of action like you told her to move her hand if she mm -hmm. didn't move her hand she she moved her hand ultimately you made the action happen i can see that man that would be that would still be very um You're Years ago, we talked about a variety of operant conditioning paradigms, including active avoidance, passive avoidance, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, but, but man, I don't see this uh, um, to, to always punish and to believe that actually the dog's going to choose to do the things that you want him to do, because that's what they suggest when they say punishment-based. Like, like they, they truly want you to believe that they do nothing but punishing and this is i i don't think i mean i, I i've thought about it can i do it myself and i know i cannot i mean they, they there is no way i don't think uh, you know like we're not talking i'm not talking a simple one or two behavior we're talking a, a performance of 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 anything you know and you just have punishing punishment as your only option in training? Um, I see it as a continuum. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. the purely positive folks don't even acknowledge that a continuum should be because they refuse the use of any kind of aversive. But I see, um, I mean, myself, I, I'm light-handed. Um, I use aversives kind of like a scalpel to fix things. They're not right. my major tools by any means. Right. But other trainers, right. I'm sure, uh, like the e-collar is a major tool. They get started with that as a puppy. And so that type of person would definitely be further down the continuum than I am. Yeah, for sure. Like this is, uh, I mean, I'm such a big advocate of, of education. I wouldn't say that I'm advocate of punishment because that, that's ridiculous. But educate and and you know, like, like things work and if they work, we need to understand them and we need to get good at them and use them for what we need to use them instead of going through, I don't know, I mean, th think of any behavioral problem that's a little bit more serious and more, per more persistent and a force-free trainer will go the route of, we're going to go 
some differential reinforcement programming and we're going to take our time and we're going to take two steps towards the whatever it is the the and if it doesn't work we're going to step back and so on and we're going to teach something incompatible and we're going to spend three months or three years and eventually the dog's going to be seven years or eight years and it, it wouldn't matter or the owner's going to be like i cannot do this i'm taking that dog to the shelter and all scientific papers i mean it's just zillions of papers it's just we we shouldn't even be talking about it but differential reinforcement combined with punishment especially if you especially if you don't know what's reinforcing or you cannot control that reinforcer that creates the bad thing punishment does magic at that moment and then you take it to the differential reinforcement and now you have a plan i couldn't agree more as a my business as a canine consultant much of the time is teaching people how to appropriately use punishment, how to use it in a humane and appropriate way to get the effectiveness that you're talking about. It works. The reason I was bringing this up is because I, I talk about it so much, so much, and sometimes I feel that I shouldn't because it's really, I mean, it's everything is of interest as a dog trainer to me. But sometimes on, on social media, I would defend the use of electric colors. Guess what happens? The, the worst crowd is trying to team up with me. I'm like, dude, we're not the same. Yes. Just because you and I hold remote collar, we are not the same. Like I cannot, like, please don't tag me in your posts. And, and just like you were saying, like, I mean, it is a little puppy. Why do we need to do this? It's not a, if you, if you're so big on electricity, just get to magnets and use the plus and minus and play with them, you know? You don't need a live puppy to do that with. Of course, if the puppy, I don't know, it, it, I had a, I mean, I mean, just, just recently here, I sold a puppy to somebody and they had to go to Arizona and the puppy is eight weeks old, but they had to go visit some family in Arizona and you know how Arizona has the landscaping it's all gravel and rocks and whatever so the puppy's never seen it and decides that rocks are cool so it starts swallowing rocks so I get a phone call I'm like well don't let him he's like no you don't understand like when I touch his stomach they're jiggling in his stomach that's how many rocks he's ate oh geez not good I'm like exactly exactly I'm like okay let's take him to the vet Let's hope that maybe he can poop something out and they don't need to open him at eight weeks old. And whatever it is, call me after you get there, after you get back, and let's see what we do. And luckily, the, the puppy pooped everything out. I mean, they did x-ray a few times and, and it got cleared and whatever. And I'm like, well, there's few options. You either have to keep it away because that's all it takes, a little puppy. He'll forget, like three days, keep him away from the rocks and he'll probably forget about it. But if you cannot, then the other option, let's just suppress it right away, boom, to where it's worth it, to where it's like, no, don't question, rocks are a bad idea. It's an easy concept. In, in situation like this, yeah, sure, I would do it. But to go nick and nick and working level and like just this uh, constant electric stimulation on a on a forget a puppy any dog why right i see it as a lack of understanding they think i i i have a feeling that a lot of the especially the young trainers it's not so much about accomplishing something with the dog and put, keeping the dog in the right mind but proving to themselves how good of a trainer they are to where the the actual being that little dog is not the important part the important part is how good of a trainer i am look what i can do this is uh um i don't know what you see around in your in your experience but i i this is like my observation lately i think that's more common in competition yeah less common in pet homes but sure but the professional trainers that work with pet owners 
do the same thing. A, a lot of them, at least. I mean, you have the divides, of course, right? But um, it's like, oh, no, we, the first thing is we, we're not going to actually make that dog like us. We're going to start zapping him like a, using him like a remote control car. Like, okay, go away, come back, go away, come back, do this, don't do this. It's like, hey, that thing has a little somebody there. Acknowledge him, give him some love, at least, at least. Take your time. Like, yes, you can teach a dog to heal and sit and down in two weeks. And then the next trainer is, oh, I can do it in one week. It's like, what are we racing for? Yeah, what's Just to, to burn the fuses of the animals? I, I want to hear some of your, when you did all the laboratory stuff, any, anything that would stick out right away in your mind, any, any kind of story. I really want any, any of those, of any of your research, any, anything that you played in the laboratory environment that was, that you got surprised. I remember I was doing a study once where as the study involved excessive drinking behavior. It was related to some of the research um, John Stadden had done. And I was brand new grad student. It was early research and you know, I, I, the animal supposed to, the rat is supposed to drink too much, like a normal rat might drink 10 milliliters. An adult male, a large rat might drink 15 milliliters. And using this- We're talking water or alcohol or- Water, water. Okay, okay. Actually, it'll even work with alcohol, and I did studies like that as well. 5% mm -hmm, mm -hmm. alcohol, a way to get the animal drunk. But as a result of the training over days, they begin to drink excessively. And within four days, the animal drank like 40, 50 milliliters. And I didn't believe it. I thought that I made a mistake. So the next day I camped out and watched the rat in the cage. And sure enough, it was drinking like a maniac and then it was urinating. And then I realized that no, I didn't make a mistake. Uh, it really was drinking too much. I always thought that was kind of funny because it was just like, wow. Stuff right. really happens. So, so what did you make of that? Well, it was this complex stuff of of why does it drink too much? It, it's some complex phenomena. It was called schedule induced polydipsia. Uh, dipsia is drinking. Poly is too much. Uh, schedule schedules reinforcement. So basically, what we did is it was originally a study by Skinner. And uh, Stadden proved Skinner wrong in this case. Uh, it was called superstition in the pigeon. Mm -hmm. And basically what, you with me here? Yes, I, I struggled with that one. I mean, I've read that one so many times. It was some thick stuff. But that was a study where Skinner gave the pigeon some grain, some food, every 15 seconds. And the pigeons started doing, they did this with a bunch of pigeons, and they all started doing goofy behaviors in between the food deliveries. And Skinner said it was the accident that the food rewarded the behavior. And so right. whatever the rat, the rat was doing just prior to food delivery, that got rewarded. Well, Stadden and a colleague, Simulhag, Stadden and Simulhag showed that that was all wrong, that uh, biology plays a big role and if you take a thirst, uh, a hungry rat and you give it food regularly, uh, you can generate this excessive drinking. Uh, if I put a, a wood chunk in the cage, I could generate the chewing at the wood. Uh, they call it pica. Uh, mm -hmm. If I put a wheel in the cage, I could generate wheel running. But the, the thing that Stadden and Simulhag showed was that those weird behaviors, they don't happen just before the food, as Skinner predicted. But Skinner never looked at the rat in the cage. Stadden and Simulhag did. And when you look at them, you see that these behaviors, they're not related to the food. They're generated by the schedule due to the animal's biology, keeping things simple. Uh, but it wasn't, it was a mistake by Skinner. It was an interesting mistake. Yeah, yeah. He, man, he has few mistakes, but he's so, so, 
anybody that that's pro, that is that productive and prolific is going to make some mistakes. Yes, of course. But Skinner, yes. as as uh, Dr. Staten indicated, was a most interesting individual, a brilliant man. Brilliant. Have you? Did you have a chance to to meet in person or no? Uh, Skinner. Skinner, I once attended a seminar he gave, but that mm. was along with 3,000 other people. <laughs> sure. Well, it's Talk still something. And it was a couple of years just before he died, so I never uh, spoke with or met Skinner. I did uh, meet some of his students and stuff like that, but not Skinner himself. Other faces that I've met are like Marty Seligman, Dr. Seligman and, uh, yeah? and uh, Helplessness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Steve Lindsay. Awesome. Man, thank you for this. We we gotta meet in person sometime soon. It's been uh, very long quick. time. But you do travel. Hey, you pass through my neck of the woods, we get together. What I'm doing now, I'm I'm I just bought this uh sprinter van and I'm converting it and I'm gonna load up some dogs and I'm definitely coming your way. You, so you're better. Chicago, I connect with you. I'm not that far from Chicago, four hours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely doing it. So, yeah, thank you for joining me. And of course, you know, when I when I get some study that I'm gonna get stuck and hit a wall, My pleasure, I'm Brad. calling you. I'm calling you. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Yep. Have a good night. We'll talk soon. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to episode two of the Training Without Conflict podcast with my guest Mark Plonsky. We talked about some studies, articles, videos in this episode. And if you're interested in checking those out, make sure that you check the show notes where we will list all of them. Thank you for listening. You can find the Training Without Conflict podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other major podcast applications. See you all on the next one.